I find it odd and a little disturbing that two little words consisting of just 15 letters were used to label me. Not only were they incorrect, they changed the course of my life forever. Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in, but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Digging Through Dominoes. I'm your host, Terry. And in the last episode, we spoke about my visit to the Behavioral Center. Now, let's make that clear. I'm hoping it was the first and only visit of my life. I think I left off in the last episode letting you know for them to break me out of that place, I had to have an appointment with a therapist. I didn't know any therapist. I had never seen one myself. I had some that the kids had seen. And the only one I could get a hold of at that time was a licensed clinical social worker. So I made an appointment with her and it came a couple of days after they discharged me from the behavioral unit. Usually I'm pretty easygoing, happy-go-lucky, you know, in appointments with other people. It's never that big of a deal. But when I walked into her, her office, I was really uncomfortable. Her office was, you know, here I'm analyzing the, the therapist. Her, her office was stark and a little sterile, it felt to me. She was nice enough. Um, with the kids, she had always been wonderful. But with me, I got a different feeling. She seemed abrupt, skeptical, and really judgmental with me. And I got the feeling that with each question and the way she looked at me, she was trying to pry open the cracks in my facade and let whatever was inside just come spewing out. And for some reason, even at that point, that was early on in my journey, I knew that wouldn't be a good thing. I was very uncomfortable, very untrusting. And there was something about the way, not only that she spoke to me, but the way she looked at me that stirred up memories that I had long since buried. And I really, I didn't want to go there. Each session with her, you know, they were mandated. So I had to go. And each session with her was more difficult than the one before. I just became increasingly uncomfortable with her. You know, the, the questions she was asking and, and what she wanted to know, you know, sort of things that you would tell someone that was really close to you, your best friend, um, your mom or dad, perhaps your spouse. I didn't feel comfortable in, in giving those answers to her. As a matter of fact, I realized that a lot of my relationships were pretty much surface level at that time. I didn't go deep. I didn't dive deep. I didn't know why. 
but I just didn't do it. I knew that the sessions with her weren't going anywhere. I knew I would never be able to fully open up to her. And I really didn't want to at that point. I had spent my entire life searching for someone or something that could quench my parched soul. You know, I wanted to belong. I wanted to be loved unconditionally. And every time I opened up to that, I was devastated a little more each time. And I gradually, you know, by the time I saw her, my heart was totally covered in bulletproof armor surrounded by barbed wire is the way it felt. I mean, I didn't trust anyone. Not not a person did I trust at that time. After seeing her a few times, she said that she wanted me to see a psychiatrist that shared her building because she wanted to get a second outside opinion on what she thought might be happening with me. I tell you, I jumped at that because, you know, at that point, I was done with this woman. I would just sit there in her office and stare at her. I had nothing to say to her. Because even something as inconsequential to me, such as telling her that my favorite bedtime snack was a bowl of frozen grapes, she looked at me like I was freaking out of my mind. Yeah, shut down. I wasn't going to talk. I jumped at the suggestion to see the psychiatrist. You know those personality tests that were given from time to time, either like for a job application or just because they pop up on the internet and they seem like fun? I have always loved doing those. So I was thinking that, and I don't know why, What I don't know if I was trying to secretly attempt to figure out what was going on with me, why I had the feelings I did or what, but I kind of was wishing that that would happen. I know, blonde, dumb. Well, not dumb. I guess I was curious to find out what was going on, but at that point, I really wasn't ready to do it with another human. After all, every human in my life had failed me to that point. So I made the appointment with the psychiatrist and that was nerve wracking. Generally, you know, I dress for me. I do my makeup for me. I, everything I I did, I did it for myself. This time I found that even doing my hair was giving me a bit of a problem because I was thinking if I do my hair like this, is that going to mean something? If I wear this outfit, what is that going to mean? What about these shoes? Should I put on perfume? I had all of these just really kind of crazy feelings about what I was even, what I was even going to wear. That should have been a clue to me that my inner core knew something was going on and I didn't want to touch it at that point. I wasn't ready at that point. So the time came and I got to her office and I was sitting in there and I was looking around the room at all the photographs. They were all black and white and they were different subjects like children, couples, people walking in the grass, people looking at the stars. 
And I don't know if any of you guys watched The Sopranos or not, but I did. And it took me back to the episode when Tony first walked into his psychiatrist's office. And he's sitting there looking at the paintings. And they're freaking him out. And he's thinking, well, you know, what's the hidden meaning in, in these pictures? I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, what do these mean? Where are they coming from? It's really strange that when you're in, or at least for me, being in a, a place, an atmosphere where you know you're going to be psychologically examined, I got pretty aware, pretty hypervigilant. I was paranoid about everything. The way I sat, which magazine to put, to pick up. I mean, if should I look at Reader's Digest or should I look at Homes and Garden? I didn't know because at that that point in my life, I was questioning every single move I made when it came to professionals. Now, at home, I wasn't. At home, I was escaping. I was shopping. I was drinking. And I'm not a drinker. I, I was escaping. I, was, I would go to Starbucks every day. I didn't want to be home. I didn't want to be around anyone. I wanted to isolate. But now I'm forced to interact with this psychologist and I'm afraid of what she's going to fish out of me. I'd never seen her before, so I really, I really didn't know what to expect. And I, as I was sitting there, like with sweat dripping down the center of my back because I was so, I had so much anxiety, the door opened. And in that moment, as the door opened, I, I know probably all of you have had those, those spaces in time when there's been an accident or something's happened and it's as if time is suspended and you have a million different thoughts going through your mind in just a few seconds. Well, that's kind of what it was like. One of the things I was thinking about was, did I have not a demon in the, in the strictest sense, but, you know, figuratively, what were my demons? Did they have a name? Was I my own worst enemy? You know, all these things are going through my mind as I saw that door open. And when the door opened and I looked up at this woman, I instantly calmed down. She was tall, probably 5'8", 5'9". She was dressed very elegantly. She had on black trousers, a red long sleeve sweater, pearls. She had huge blue eyes. She was probably my age, about 45 maybe. And naturally blonde hair that was one length that came down and flipped up on her shoulders. And she just had a very welcoming feeling about her. And as I, as I was walking into her office, as I was following her, you know, through the maze into her office, I remember wondering or I remember thinking, thinking about my life and the turmoil that seemed to surround me and pull me into its depths. There were so many times that I didn't know if I'd be able to get out again. And it was weird just walking in there. All of this stuff started bubbling up and a lot of it I started pushing down. I didn't want to think about it. 
I didn't realize it at that time, but looking back, I can see it. One wanting to think about it, one wanting to deal with one. I wasn't wanting to deal with it. In my notes here, it, it's interesting. One of the feelings that I had, and I'll read this here. And I wrote, at the time, I wondered if these tumultuous times wouldn't, why they would not release their grips on me. Or if it was I that couldn't release my grips on them. You know, it was really strange how introspective I became awaiting this huge verdict. Seeing the doctor made me more calm on the outside, you know, surface level. But inside, I was still wondering what was going to happen. What was she going to say? But I knew no matter what she did say, I had the feeling that whatever she said was going to change my entire life. And I didn't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing at the time. And we're going to be getting into that because, yeah. Now, when we walked into her office, that was really interesting. She was speaking with me, and she had a very lovely voice, very soothing, very soft. And as we walked into her voice, as we walked into her office, I noticed it was quite large, but it felt really cozy and familiar and comfortable. It was it was very traditionally but classically designed, and it felt very comfortable and accommodating until you know you always have or I think people I had this stereotypical feeling that her office was going to have like this couch in there and I was going to have to lay down on it there were butterfly nets and straight jackets and all of this other paraphernalia in there in case you know whatever but it wasn't like that her desk was there and then she had three chairs Normally, I would have just sat in the chair, but that day, oh heck no, I started analyzing the chairs. All right, so if I pick the chair on the left, is that going to mean I'm psychotic? If I pick the chair on the right, does that mean I'm a hypochondriac? So I went with what anyone in my situation would do. I became paranoid and I chose the chair in the middle. Seemed like the safest bet to me. I know she was probably watching every move I made. At least that's the way it felt. Then when I sat down, oh my gosh, I was scrutinizing my posture. I was scrutinizing my body language. Was I giving off uncooperative vibes? Were my arms crossed? Were my legs crossed? Were my hands like this? Therefore, signaling I was going to be very tight with any information that I released to her. It, it was insane, the pressure I put on myself meeting this woman. You know, she began asking me questions about my childhood, about my parents, about my siblings. And I kept that very surface level. I remember feeling very uncomfortable with those questions. And I kept them as surface level as I could. There were some things I admitted, like my father was an alcoholic, that I had two brothers, that I was the oldest, you know, things like that. But I wouldn't, at that time, I don't think I knew to go beyond that because at that time, I didn't realize I was hiding something 
that I didn't want opened. So after she got through that, she started asking me about my present, at that time, experiences, my present traumas. And we talked about a lot of my symptoms. I'm going to read these to you. I've got them written down here. And I found actually another one of my posts that had these written in there. We, we talked about feelings of being hopeless, inability to experience pleasure, or was everything a carnival? We talked about my sleep patterns. Was I tired all the time? Was I really energetic? Did I feel like I was being driven by a motor? Talked about appetite changes, weight loss, sleep problems. Yeah, mega sleep problems. Memory problems, feeling worthless, thoughts of death or ending everything. We, she, she kept trying to go over traumatic events in my life. And that was something I just sort of skimmed over. You know, I had a lot of trauma, my grandson dying, my mom dying, my dad dying, being here on the motorcycle, um, two of my grandkids being bored three months early, my son being hit by a hit and run driver. There were a lot of things in a very short period of time. And I let her know about those. She asked me if I felt this detached from myself. And I, uh, I think I did, but I think I was more trying to detach from myself and the circumstances around me, if that makes sense. If I had difficulty trusting others, uh, I think that'd be a great big yes. Difficulty with relationships, well, I didn't trust anyone. So uh, yeah, I had difficulty with relationships. Seeking or becoming a rescuer, yes, very much so. Um, and in a way, I think I did that sort of to take the light off of myself. I took, you know, I had a lot of special needs kids. And every spare moment, that's what I was doing. I was taking care of those kids, doctor's appointments, in and out. Yeah, I did that. I did that. And I was always afraid to say no. If someone asked for something, I was afraid to set a boundary. Being hyper alert. You know, this is something I still struggle with is hypervigilance and being hyper alert. Someone could walk up behind me and I wouldn't know they were there. And if I turned around, I would scream, I would jump, I would go into a panic mode, get very filled with anxiety. I would start to get these, um, like the anxiety kind of sweating. It was just, it was weird. I understand where that comes from now. And I really kind of wish it'd go away because it's embarrassing. And then I have written down here, she asked me if I had a feeling or a loss of spiritual attachment. I don't think I did. I stopped going to church, but I, I never backed off of my faith. And she asked me if I depended on religion for my self-worth. No, I didn't. So those are some of the more specific questions she, she asked me. Then she started asking me things about, like I said, did I feel like I was being driven by a motor? She asked me, I think I mentioned about sleep. How much sleep did I need? 
Could I, could I stay awake for three days on an hour's sleep? You know, these questions were really weird to me because at that point I had never done any investigation on anything that I was going through. I was focused mainly on my kids at that point. You know, the more we spoke, as I said before, the more comfortable I became. I stopped looking for hidden syringes, men in the corner with a butterfly net, torture devices, you know, all those things that you see in the movies. I stopped thinking about that. And I just sort of tried it. I, she did. She got me very comfortable. And I sort of slid into a bit of a familiarity sort of a situation. But I still didn't tell her a lot. I, I, looking back on it, I realized that I never told really anyone a lot. Because like I said, anytime I did, it backfired and was either used against me or just sort of filed away for future use. After asking and answering all the questions that I spoke of, she started to concentrate on my forgetfulness, my mood changes, my shopping, which really couldn't be considered shopping. It could be considered a way of life, if you get what I'm saying. But man, I got some good stuff. She asked me about depression, irritability, you know, just sort of the normal stuff that you would think about. And the entire meeting took about three hours. It didn't seem like it took that long because I was interested in a lot of this stuff. Even though I was uncomfortable, I was interested in, I didn't didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I can see that I liked someone asking questions about me and me not having to answer questions about someone else. You know, it reminds me of the time when I was just probably 12 years old and I didn't know who to talk to. I couldn't talk to my parents because that just wasn't done in my house. And I was having all these weird thoughts and all these weird feelings. And we'll go in that into all of that way down the road. But I remember I got the phone book out and I was circling like psychologists, psychiatrists, all of these things. I knew something was up. Something was bothering me. Something was trying to bubble to the surface. The reply I got was my dad was had come home from a, a business trip and he was sitting in the living room and he looked at me and he said, well, it seems like someone in this house wants us to think that she's crazy because I found psychiatrist and psychotherapist circled in the phone book. So it wasn't taken seriously. I was crying out for help at that time, but no one would acknowledge it. Not really sure why, but that's just sort of the way it went. So with this woman asking these questions of me, I kind of enjoyed it because it took me back to that time when I really did try to get help and I couldn't get it. After about three hours, she had her notepad with all of her little charts and diagrams and notes. And she, her chair swiveled around. She turned around and she set her notepad and her pen 
on her beautiful walnut desk. She turned back around. She put her hands, her elbows on her knees, and she rested her hand on her head. She rested her head on her hands, and she looked at me and said, I feel very comfortable with the diagnosis of bipolar disorder 2. I was stunned. And I remember thinking, well, I'm glad you're comfortable with it. I don't even know what it means except for the stereotypes I see in my head and I don't like them. You know, bipolar 2 is not really the classic bipolar that people think of when they think of bipolar disorder. I wasn't having delusions. I wasn't having hallucinations. I didn't have any behavior that could be considered psychotic. I did have behavior happening that wasn't normal for me. But I didn't have any of those other things happening. The more I thought about it, though, the more I embraced it. I embraced it because at that point, you know, I felt like I would... I was spiraling. I was spiraling. I was spiraling into this this pit of despair. My gosh, everything that had happened. I'm spiraling, spiraling, and it gave me something to hang on to. You know, it was as if now I could put a label on something, but I didn't want to tell anyone at the time because of the stereotypical things that I was thinking of. I didn't want to tell anyone anything. So I had to sort of sit and digest. And I, I still wasn't really convinced because a lot of the things that I looked up didn't fit what was happening with me. I'm not one that can function on just a little, a little sleep. I need like a lot of sleep. And I was sleeping all day the time. There were so many inconsistencies in the diagnosis, but I was so desperate to find out what was going on. I latched on to the the compatibilities with the diagnosis and became convinced that I did indeed have bipolar disorder too. As I said, I wasn't going to tell anyone because of the stigma attached to it. And the more I read, I started reading blogs. Blogs were really big back then. I started reading a lot of blogs and a lot of other people's experiences with bipolar 2. And they were whining and they were complaining and they were just, they weren't uplifting and they weren't giving me information. They were just basically people that you wouldn't really want to be around in real life if that's the way they were talking. It was a real downer. So I decided to start a blog of my own because I was thinking, how is anyone going to get ahead with this disorder if you don't recognize it and take control of it? Everyone I saw, it seemed, was allowing it to control them and they weren't controlling it. And my philosophy at that time, it still is, but my philosophy was, well, you have to recognize it. You have to treat it correctly. 
and you have to be determined to take control of it. So that's, that's what I tried. I didn't always succeed. And this, this psychiatrist prescribed several medications for me. She put me on antipsychotics. She put me on mood stabilizers. And this was all around the time Obamacare started. And doctors in private practice in every branch, they were quitting. They were shutting their businesses and they were going into the hospital setting. They were going into bigger practices. And so I was losing all of my doctors. I lost her after about six months. She went to work for a hospital. And until I found my current psychiatrist, I think I must have gone through, and this was like not even on a yearly basis. Sometimes it would just be like three months, four months, sometimes a year. I was going through psychiatrists. They were quitting. They were closing up shop left and right, like I said. And that was really frustrating because none of them took the time to get to know me. They just accepted the previous diagnosis and kept prescribing more medications. And because I didn't have bipolar 2, the medications weren't working. I had been very creative in, in my writing, in my literature, in my poetry, in artwork. And when they put me on the mood stabilizers, they pretty much made me a zombie. And they started me on um, antipsychotics, which promptly made me gain about 30 to 40 pounds. And they made me crazy. They made me absolutely crazy. And I remember looking at the side effects and thinking, oh my gosh, I sure hope the benefits outweigh the side effects, but I wasn't feeling any benefits at that time. Then when that last, I don't know, the fourth or fifth psychiatrist quit, I ended up with my current psychiatrist and I have been with him for years. And at first he didn't know me and he went along with the recommendation of the prior doctors of bipolar two. But as time went on, as he got to know me better, he began suggesting that I didn't have bipolar. He thought I had PTSD. I wasn't going for that. And there's a reason. If you have PTSD, in my case, CPTSD, you don't want to bring up all those traumatic memories. You want to keep them buried, or at least I did. So I rejected them, just flat out rejected that diagnosis. Well, as time went on, he really was encouraging me. He said, Terry, I don't see bipolar in you. I just don't see bipolar. But I do see severe post-traumatic stress disorder. So I began to study that. One of the things that was, that was kind of interesting that got me off of the antipsychotics, I don't think I would have gotten off of them on my own because I was still hoping that some pharmaceutical miracle was going to make me better when in reality they were just making me worse. I started having something that's called tardive dyskinesia. And that 
is a disorder, a permanent disorder that makes you have tics, certain mouth movements. If you go back and look at any of my videos on the tattooed biker chick, you'll be able to see if I'm in a high stress situation, I, you can see it in my mouth. I am on an anti-seizure medication that controls the tardive dyskinesia. I take Keppra and I take, a, I think it's 2,000 milligrams a night and it, it worked. But times that I am in high stress, I can tell that the tardive dyskinesia will take over. And I've seen it in my videos time and time again. And that's one thing I love about my psychiatrist is that he really watches me in things that I don't even know he's watching. You know, we'll be having this conversation and he's seeing something completely different than I'm thinking about. So we ended getting me off of the antipsychotics. We got me off of the mood stabilizers and things began to change. I started reading about PTSD and that was really interesting. At the same time that I found my therapist, my uh, psychiatrist, at the same time I found my psychiatrist, I guess it was several months later, I found my therapist. And they would have, they would have phone conversations about my case. And they were both seeing the same thing. They didn't see bipolar. They saw PTSD. They, they can't really say CPTSD because that's not in the, what is it? The DM, D, MS5 or whatever it is. And if they were to diagnose me with that, they couldn't get paid because it's not an actual psychiatric condition at present in America. It is in other countries, but as of right now, I don't think it's in the manual which is a shame because PTSD and complex PTSD are not the same animal. So they really started tag teaming me and I started to believe more and more that I had PTSD. There were a lot of things that had happened and I was, I was kind of hanging my hat on that. My mom being killed, my dad dying, me being hit on my motorcycle my son, oh my gosh, it was horrifying getting that phone call that we think we have your son. He's been hit by a drunk driver, they thought, and he was at the trauma hospital here. That was, I think, one of the longest drives of my life. We didn't know if my son was going to live or not. So I had all of this trauma from 2004 to 2008, and it was just continuing you know, with the foster kids, with my kids, with my marriage. And so I became more and more comfortable with PTSD as a diagnosis. Got off all of my antipsychotics, all of my mood stabilizers. I still am on my antidepressant. I still have anxiety disorder. I still get panic attacks, although I haven't had a panic attack in a long time. But the more I read, the more I found out, as I said before, PTSD is an entirely different animal than complex post-traumatic stress disorder. 
So that's all I have today. We'll go into this more and continue this on the next episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I would love it if you would subscribe, share, and give me your feedback. What do you think? Have you been diagnosed with either of these? How did it change your life? I would love to know. And I'm sure everyone watching or listening to this podcast would benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at DiggingThroughDominoes.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.